uh, we want to think about the skill of listening first. So what makes for a poor listener? Impatience. An inability to appreciate the present. That's my definition for impatience. Driven by your agenda. So you're too focused on getting your point across in a conversation rather than taking the time to hear someone else out. Or tiredness. You know, I'm, we're, we're out of that stage with preschool kids where you have kids waking up in the middle of the night. And so you show up at work having gotten like half the amount of sleep you should. Um, and so you're exhausted by the end of the day, so it's hard to track with people as you're listening to them. Or distractions. Maybe you're in a distractible environment. So if you were in my office, uh, there are windows right there, so I'm visible in all the work I'm doing. But sometimes, it's right outside in the lobby, there's a, our staff, sometimes guys are seeing each other, they're starting to tell each other jokes, they're, they're, they're making a ruckus out in front of the front desk. I don't have people crying on my couch. <laughs> and so I'm trying to not be distracted by the ruckus that's out there and stay focused. Or let's say you just had a really hard conversation, like maybe I did with a spouse or one of our teenagers, a walk across the street, and now I have to be in, in, in a session with someone and I have to be really focused. And yet, where's my heart? It's back here in that hard conversation. I have not worked through it in my own heart, and yet I've got to pay attention to the person who's right in front of me. Zoning out. Now, you know, some of you on Sunday when I see you, you're going to be much more godly than I am. You take notes for the sermons. And then what you do is you meditate on them, you share them with each other, you, you actually find good uses for them. You know why I take notes? Because 45 seconds into the sermon, I'm zoning out. The main reason why I take notes is so I can hear the pastor and pay attention to what he's saying. That's why I jot things down immediately, so it helps me stay focused. Well, maybe you're like me. You tend to zone out. And so working hard at paying attention to what the person's saying or interrupting. You know, there are different kind of communication styles. Uh, high involvement versus high consideration is a difference in style. I'm a high involvement communicator. I, I, I will tend to interrupt your sentence because I have something to say <laughs> or I'm already thinking about something I want to communicate. Uh, I need to grow in patience in listening in giving you the time to say what you need to say. Now, if, if someone says something and you miss it, you need to be humble enough to ask them to repeat themselves, but you can't do that too many times in a conversation. Can you? Because that communicates you're not actually paying enough attention to what they're saying. Now, the biblical picture of a bad listener is the proverbial fool. Think about some of these verses. Uh, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Proverbs 18.2. Or if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Proverbs 18.13. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him, Proverbs 29, 20. The biblical picture of a fool is one who doesn't listen and understand, but speaks too quickly. He's impulsive. He answers before he hears. He doesn't take time to hear and then speak. In 18.2, the fool finds pleasure only in saying what he or she wants to say. In 18.13, you see, because of his impulsive speech, he lacks understanding and he's deemed foolish and shameful, or as one commentator said, he's stupid and a disgrace. The exact opposite of the proverbial fool is what James gives us. What does he say in 119? Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. James' encouragement is the exact opposite of the fool which is we should be quick to hear and slow to speak in our conversations. Now, what makes for a good listener? You see the things I listed there. Being fully present. That's my ability to fully engage in the moment. That I'm focused, I'm not distracted, and I stay engaged, which is hard work. Now, if you see me in a counseling session, so sometimes at counseling conferences, I will actually do a live session, someone with a problem, in front of an audience. 
And sometimes what people will observe afterwards is they said, you were leaning forward, you were leaning into the whole thing almost the whole time. Well, that's because if you're talking to me, I want to be fully focused on who you are, what you're saying, what's happening in that moment. Listen for listening, not listening for responding. Some of you listen just because you're, 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 you're trying to figure out what you're going to say, and you even got that thing queued up, ready to go. <laughs> rather than listening for the sake of actually just simply hearing the other person out. Listen much more than you speak. A few of you are talkers like I am. Like you got a lot more words to offer than the other person does, and so you tend to chatter a lot. And yet you need to discipline yourself because it's easy for you to talk. It's much harder for you to take the time to listen. And then eye contact and squarely facing the person. You know, when I'm talking to you, I need to look at you. You know what drives me nuts? When people keep looking at their phone when I'm trying to talk to them. Put your phone away. I'm trying to talk to you. Come on now. Pay attention to me. That's what I'm dying to say, but I don't say it. <laughs> All the things you want to say in a conversation, but you don't say. So, you know, what, what, what's going on? Well, I, 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 want, I, want, I want us to talk to each other. And you know, have you ever been in that place where you see someone sitting across from you you know, they grab the throw pillow and they kind of curl up in their posture. Or they're leaning over on the side. Well, what am I looking for? I'm looking for an open posture. You know, an open posture communicates I'm here and I'm ready to communicate with you. And, you know, a, a eye contact communicates something. A break in eye contact also communicates something. You know, it can reveal a lack of interest. So, for example, if you're in my office again, Imagine a couple sitting across from me on the couch. Oftentimes, I'm there trying to help them with their marriage, which is usually in trouble. And sometimes I'm speaking to one spouse, and the next spouse starts looking around at the bookshelves and staring at the books. And I'm thinking, I'm trying to rescue your marriage. Pay attention. Pay attention to what's going on. Or picture a marriage and the spouse has committed adultery. It's the first conversation I'm having with them. And usually in that conversation, where's the adulterer looking? They're looking down. So the last time this happened, as I'm speaking to the adulterer, I said to them, look up at me, because I wanted to tell them about God's forgiveness, and I wanted to make eye contact with them. You know what she said to me? I can't look at you. I'm too ashamed of what I did. So that break in eye contact communicated a lot, didn't it? It com communicated the enormity of the shame that she was experiencing, even in being in front of her pastor and having to tell what she had done over the previous year. Now, you also got to recognize there are cultural differences when it comes to eye contact. You know, in our culture, Americans can be very direct in their communication, and very direct in their body language. But in some cultures, direct eye contact is a sign of disrespect. So you have to think about the different cultural elements as you interact with people. Then active body language, you can, you can already see, you know, my, my kids joke me in terms of my hand, my, my hands, my use of my hands. They call it chopping when I preach. My hands came to come up and down. But I've got active and engaged body language, right? You know, if I was standing up here like a dud, like curling in, staring at my notes, it would be more boring. <laughs> but if I'm a bit more engaged, my hands are going, I'm looking at you, it's a, a lot more active. Well, active body language communicates something, doesn't it? It's not just your words, it's your body language as you're communicating with someone that actually matters. So an all open, relaxed posture rather than a closed posture squarely facing someone, leaning forward and communicating, using hand motions, your, 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 uh, your nonverbal expressions on your face. All of that communicates to someone. Then nodding in agreement and saying, uh-huh. If you sit there silent like a dud, they don't know if you're paying attention to you. But uh, small little verbal cues like, oh, sure, uh-huh, yeah, okay, I get it. Mm -hmm. I mean, all those little things actually help the conversation keep moving along. And then patience. Don't interrupt people. 
I mean, I've had to work on this for a long time to make sure if you're talking to me, I'm letting you finish what you're saying. And not just a sentence. Sometimes somebody's talking something out, and you just have to give them the space to finish talking it out without interrupting your thought or interrupting with your question or interrupting with your idea. And I've had a lot of pastors sit in with me as I've worked through a session with someone, especially as we're co-counseling in a situation together. And I've had more than once a pastor said, I would have said something a lot sooner. I wouldn't have waited as long as you did. So practical application. How good of a listener are you? Now it's your turn to begin to think about this. Scale of 1 to 10. 10, you're the best listener in the entire universe, not just the planet. The entire universe. Number one, you're the worst listener on the planet. Go ahead and write down a number. And if you're married, don't speak over at what your spouse is writing down. (laughs) Go ahead and get a number in your mind or write something down. Okay, number two, here's what I want you to do with it. You're going to go to someone who knows you really well. If you're married, it's probably your spouse. You know, if you're you're single, it's a best friend, a a, a parent, somebody, a roommate. And you're going to share with them your number. (laughs) But before you do that, you're going to ask them to rate you. But only do this if you're humble enough to receive that rating. Because some of you are going to be surprised by the number you get. And yet, when you hear that number, the conversation should go like this. Oh, honey, I rank myself as an eight. Why do you rank me as a three? (laughs) Last time I had that conversation with my wife, you know what she said? She said, you're paying too much attention to your phone when you're with us. Ooh, that was an arrow right to the heart. Because she was right. You know, the message from that, put your phone away. So we have now in our home, we have what we call an LSED box. You know what that is? All phones, because now there's four of us in our family of seven have cell phones. All phones go away right before dinner so that we're paying attention to one another and nobody's pulling out their phone and paying attention to it while we're together as a family. It's a life-sucking electronic device box. L-S-E-D box. <laughs> but that, that, that's the idea. You know what? You know, we want to communicate with one another. We want to listen to one another. But in order to be a good listener, you can grow in this. It, it's not something that just the professionals know how to do. And you hear how I'm describing this. I've had to grow in this over years in order to become better. Because it matters to me as a pastor, it matters to me professionally as a counselor, man, it matters to me as a father, and it matters to me as a husband. (laughs) Okay, the biblical basis for understanding and knowing. Well, what's the biblical basis for all of this? Where do I get this? Is this this Pastor Deepak's, Dr. Deepak's master plan in making us better listeners? No, the Bible has something to say about this. Look at what Proverbs says to us. How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Proverbs 16, 16. Uh, those, who, with insight, those with insight into a matter find prosperity. Blessed are those who trust Yahweh. Proverbs 16, 20. Insight is a fountain of life to him who has it. But the discipline of fools is folly. Proverbs 16, 22. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Proverbs 18, 2. Whoever gets sense loves his own soul, and he who keeps understanding will discover good. Proverbs 19.8. Now, what do we see from these verses? You see that understanding and insight is something that is more valuable than gold. 16.16 is something that brings prosperity. 16.20 is a fountain of life. 16.22 and allows the person to discover good. 19.8. Proverbs 20, verse 5. The purpose is in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Well, what does a wise person do? Wise person draws out the heart. Much like a man who puts a bucket in a well 
and draws out the water at the bottom of the well, so also. Why do we talk to people and ask them questions and probe their life? Because we want to bring out the deeper things in that well. We want to bring out the deeper things of their heart. You see there, Hebrews 4, Christ as an example to us of understanding and sympathizing. What does the author of Hebrews say? Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Look at verse 15. Jesus is our great high priest. Now, I hate double negatives. I don't know about you, but I think they're despicable. (laughs) What does the author of Hebrews say? We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. That always confuses me. What do you have to do? Positively flip it over. We do have a high priest who is able to sympathize. That's what he's telling us. What does Christ sympathizing mean? Well, I like Paul Tripp says, the word sympathy used here literally means to be touched by what touched someone else or to be moved by what moved someone else. This is more than pity where we feel sorry for a person in a tough situation. This is understanding what it's like to be in that circumstance. So Jesus is able to sympathize with our human experience because he was tempted in every respect like we are and yet without sin. So he experienced human temptations just like we do which means he struggled with hunger and anger and greed just like we do. And yet he he did not give in because he did not sin. He was tempted in the same way we are and yet without sinning. He was tempted because he was human just like us. But he sympathizes with us because he gets it because he faced these temptations. He understands the force of the temptation, better than we do, in fact, because he didn't give in. Now think about this. Jesus gets it better than we do because he doesn't give in to the sin quickly like we often do. This is what Leon Moore says about this. The sinless one knows the force of the temptation in a way that we who sin do not. We give in before the temptation has been fully spent but only he who does not yield knows its full force. So he gets it. He actually gets it much better than we even do. The question then for you, do you want to be like your Savior? Do you want to sympathize like Jesus does? Do you feel like you struggle with sympathizing with other people's problems? Do, do, you, do you struggle with understanding what they're going through? The question I often guess is, get is, what if I've never been through that kind of problem? How am I so, supposed to sympathize if I've never had depression or been a drug addict or had an eating disorder or so on and so on? Well, you know, I, I, I can, uh, I'm a foodie by nature, so I love to eat. And so you put really good food in front of me and then I'm gone. <laughs> Uh, and, and yet, I have, by God's grace, never struggled with a drug addiction. And yet, I know the temptation of food. I know what it's like to be eating far more than I should. I know what it's like to like, be indulging in a second or third meal when I should have stopped after the first. So I can't say to a drug addict, well, I know what you're going through. I had nine slices of pizza last night. That's just not going to work because that's demeaning the nature of their addiction. And yet, in my struggle with eating and not being able to stop, do I get a little bit of a window what it looks like into not being able to say no and struggling with something that feels like it's, it's got a hold of me some moments more than it should? Yeah, yeah, I, I get a little bit of an insight, not the extent of what a drug addict is, But that begins to help me place myself in a place where I've never been and begin to sympathize in a way that would be harder for me if I've never been a drug addict. Okay, the problem of assumptions. 
because of shared experience, same Bible, same church, same language, same experiences, or because we know someone well, or because we have a shared history, we tend to make invalid assumptions and minister to people who exist in our minds rather than in front of us. When we assume, we don't ask questions. We end up counseling the person in our mind rather than the person that's sitting right in front of us. Assuming and not asking questions leads to misunderstandings in personal ministry. So I really like Paul Tripp's principle. Don't tolerate assumptions. Ask questions. Be especially careful if you're intuitive. Some of you are very gifted relationally. You, you can read people really well. You, you know often as you look at a situation how to size it up really well. You need to be especially careful because you can tend to make assumptions quickly rather than asking the questions that are needed to genuinely get to know a person who's in front of you. Now, you, you, you see there a couple of things that are useful in terms of making sure you are making sure your, your conclusions are valid, testing your conclusions before you make them. You see some of the categories they lay, lay out there in terms of having interactions with some, someone and testing your assumptions. For example, define. Ben mentioned this earlier. You know, if somebody showed up and said, we had a really bad fight, what do I want to know? I want to know, what do you mean by a bad fight? Define what you mean. Because I have couples who say, two passionate Italians, they're screaming at each other. They're throwing things. That's what a bad fight is for them. On the other side of it is two really reserved introverted people. You know, staring at each other across the table with beady eyes, that's a bad fight for them. <laughs> well, that's really different, isn't it? <laughs> so I got to figure out what they mean by a bad fight. On the one hand, on this side, it's nuclear. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's blowing the top off the roof. On this side, well, you know, it's actually not that bad. Uh, overall. And, you know, the one time I will interrupt you is if, for example, you're talking to me and you say something like, well, I was going to go do this, but I changed my mind and I decided to go to the store instead. And you keep talking and yet I'll stop you because I don't know what this is. If you say things like this or that, I, I need to go ahead and stop you and say, well, what do you mean by this? Because if I don't, stop you and find out what you mean, I'm then forced to insert my understanding of what it is. And so I want you to define it for me before you go too far with more information. Get concrete examples. So this is getting real concrete examples. This is my Howard Cosell. I mean, enough of you know what I mean when I say Howard Cosell, right? Younger audiences go, who are you talking about? Uh, but I, I want the blow-by-blow details with a couple who had a nasty fight. I want concrete, specific examples because couples often use generalizations. He's always mean to me. She never listens to what I say. Okay, well, that tells me some information, but what I want to know is in detail specifics what that looks like in your marriage. It's like as if I was pulling up a chair and I was watching the two of you go at it. I want, I want to see the concretes because then I get some real life surround sound definition for what's going on between the two of you. So I don't, I'll listen to your generalizations, but I want concrete specific examples about what's going on in your life. And then explain. Ask people to explain why they responded the way they did and summarize. A really good skill is to repeat back to someone what they just told you. You know, as I'm working through with a couple this past week, and the wife detailed some of the things that she was experiencing that was difficult. And the husband got frustrated with something, and he was about to speak in. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I don't know if you get what she said. <laughs> and so you don't get to say anything to her about what you think until you summarize for me what you just heard her say. And he said it, and he only got half of it. And he was about to speak in. He was like, okay, can I? And I was like, nope. <laughs> you got part A, but you didn't get part B. So I'm going to have her say it again, and then you're going to try it all over again. And, you know, it slowed it all down. It slowed the conversation down. And yet, people often are missing basic skills 
like understanding. Why am I having you summarized? Because we both need to be convinced that you understand what the other person is saying. That's summarizing there and then testing a hypothesis. You know, you might be looking into the dynamics of a situation and then you feel like, oh, I think I, I, think I get a little bit of what's going on here. And the temptation is just simply to speak in. This is your problem, and therefore, this is what you're doing, and therefore, this is how you can handle it. Yet, that's not very humble. I would say what you want to do is enter into a situation with a posture of humility, and therefore, I often offer it as a hypothesis. I think I can see what's going on, but I want to offer it to you, and I want you to interact with me until we're both confident we're naming accurately what's happening in your marriage. And so that's where I say, let's test the hypothesis. It's not, it's not a, a dissertation thesis that has been proven and approved. It's a hypothesis that we want to test together and refine until we're confident of what we're saying. Okay, the skill of asking questions. Flip over to page 13. I want to just give you a few principles on asking questions. The first five are Paul Trippian. The last f- five or six are Deepak Rajuian. I don't know how else to say that. The first five are Paul Tripp. The last six are basically me and Jeremy Pierre. But this should give you some sense of uh, how to ask questions. So number one, early on in a conversation, ask open-ended questions. How are you doing with the problem? Or a pastor will typically start the conversation with, how can I help you today? Number two, uh, you, you start the front end of conversation by asking open-ended questions, not close-ended questions. So if I were to ask you, do you have a good or bad marriage? And you said, oh, actually pretty good. Well, that didn't tell me much. <laughs> if I ask you, tell me about the state of your marriage, some of the trials you've been through, and how the two of you are fighting for unity in your marriage, oh, that's going to give me a lot more in regards to what's really going on in regards to marriage. Number, uh, or or you see the example there in in number two, asking just simply a yes or no question. Is your, uh, uh, do do you think this is a good thing for you, you to do? Yes, it is. Or no, it isn't. Well, it doesn't really tell me why you believe it's a good thing for you to do or why it's, why it's a significant thing for you. Number three, use a combination of survey or overview questions or focus questions. So survey questions are more general questions about a situation. Um, overall, focus questions are much more specific questions about a situation. So you, if you've ever been to a hotel, I want you to picture walking up and down the hallway. And let's say the doors are all open in that hallway. And what do you see when you walk in a hotel and you walk up and down the hallway, peek into the rooms? You see typically it has the same furniture, same carpet, same painting on the wall. Well, imagine one of those is your financial situation, another's parenting, another is your sex life, another is your discipling relationships. What am I doing? I'm walking up and down the hallway and I'm asking questions to get a sense of your life um, overall. But let's say you have issues with parenting. I'm going to zoom in on this one room and ask you very specific questions about your parenting. It's like I'm staring at one piece of the carpet and asking very specific questions about that that piece of the carpet. Well, survey questions go back and forth. I'm peeking in the different rooms because if you have an issue of pride in your job, you're probably going to have an issue of pride in your parenting. And those general questions help me to pinpoint some of the issues that are not just in your job, but also in your parenting. But the specific questions, the focus questions, help me zero in on the issue of pride in your parenting with your middle daughter, which you're having a hard season with right now, and how you need to change the nature of that relationship and what's going on right there. And so you want to ask different kinds of questions. We need both kinds of questions because they communicate different kinds of information and help us to have a more comprehensive conversation overall. Always remember certain kinds of questions reveal certain kinds of information. What uncovers 
basic information, why, purposes, desires, goals, motivations, how often, where reveals themes and patterns, and when reveals order of events. Ask a progressive line of questions which build upon each other. Most of us ask popcorn-like questions. We just kind of spurt out another question, and another question, another question, and yet there's not a logic and flow to why we're asking the next thing that we ask or why we ask the next thing. And I want to make sure when I ask something, I'm trying to lead them somewhere. I've got an intention behind that question rather than just throwing out any question at a person. Now, you might be a little intimidated by this, but if you did training with me afterwards, what I'll do is I'll actually have you do a training session where you do a role play with someone in front of me and I write down every question you ask over an hour. And afterwards, we think through, was there clear a logic and flow to what you were doing? And I'm surprised. Some people who I would never guess would get it do an amazing job at it. And some people I assumed would get it actually don't do that well. <laughs> Number six you see there. I want to try to start by asking questions that evoke self-understanding and self-discovery. Well, what am I going for? I'm trying not to simply tell them what they need to know. I think there's greater ownership of something if they come to figure it out for themselves. And so I want to, in a Socratic way, ask questions that help them reflect on their own heart and think through the issue. So Andrew Nichols was an elder in our church many years ago. There was a young guy who was struggling through a major decision. And he met with a number of different people to sort through the decision. And I asked him afterwards, how's it going? He said, I think I've made a decision. And I asked him, what was the most helpful thing? You didn't make a decision. He said, talking to Andrew. So I went to Andrew and said, what'd you do? I spent the whole hour, this is Andrew, asking him questions to help him begin to figure out what he really needed to know and what was most important to him. Andrew didn't speak in. He didn't say, this is what you should do. He just kept on asking him questions to draw out his heart and make him realize what really is most important to him and what would be the wisest decision for him. So what's my general strategy? You see there, number seven. I want to start with that self-discovery. What is going on in your life? And if that doesn't work, I'm willing to ask them leading questions. So where do you see God's mercy in this situation? And you notice the difference between that first and second question? So what, what is God doing in your life? And that second question, so where do you see God's mercy in the situation? The first one is just more general. What's God doing? Second one is, I see mercy. Do you see mercy in your life? It's a leading question. It's trying to plant mercy as an idea in, in their mind. But if that doesn't work, if, if neither of those work, then I'm willing to tell them what they need to know. But notice my order of priority. Many of us tend to just speak in right away. We know what we think, and so we just go ahead and tell them. I'm actually making them the last thing I do. Well, when do I try and tell them something? When do I try and feed them what I think they need to know? If they're distorting the truth or reality, I need to correct them. Or if they're so clueless, they don't know what to do. Or they seem so deep in sin or blind to their sin, they need to be exhorted or redirected or they lack insight or self-awareness into their own heart. And you know that when you get people who keep saying, I don't know. And you ask them more questions, they say, well, I don't know. And you get frustrated because they don't seem to have anything more to offer you. Well, then you want to slow down and be patient because they don't have much self-awareness of their own heart. So for a while, you might need to speak in to help them understand. But you want to help work with them to help them grow to understand their own heart. Number eight, you see there. You ask, as you ask questions, you're trying for a balance of giving them freedom to roam, but also guiding the conversation. By asking a question, you're directing the conversation down certain paths and cutting off other possible paths. And by doing that, you're creating fences for the conversation. So this comes from my book, The Pastor in Counseling with Jeremy Pierre. Listening well requires the delicate balance of allowing freedom to roam and keeping the person in the right field. 
we are all inclined differently. Some of us are inclined to be such passive listeners that we never interject with a helpful question to direct things. We may let the struggling person take the lead, and frankly, they don't know where to go. Others may be inclined to keep the conversation as efficient as possible by directing it with a strict agenda of directing questions. The person feels guided by the nose and probably less likely to give needed information. Listening in such a way that helpfully directs the conversation is a tough skill to master. Think of it in terms of fencing the conversation, but not leashing the person. You want them to feel the freedom to go where they want to in the proper boundaries, but not forced along a specific path. Patiently listen and don't talk over the person. But at the same time, don't be passive. More than likely, you've got only an hour or so. If you let them talk about whatever they want at whatever pace they want, they will probably mention some useful things, but many less useful things. The key is to ask follow-up questions on pieces of information that will be useful to you. This is showing them the fence without leashing them too tightly. An excellent follow-up question will both acknowledge the person's concern and direct the conversation toward the most helpful information in getting to the bottom of the problem. Number nine, different kinds of questions uses different kinds of information. So there's data collecting questions. I just have to ask enough questions to understand your situation, understand the context of your life. There's heart-oriented questions or depth questions. Now you understand what I mean by that. The questions that go after desire and motivations, worship and fear. And you see there a, a quote from my book, The Pastor and Counseling, that explains a little bit more about what we talked about earlier in terms of pursuing depth. And then there's leading questions. Uh, I asked that question earlier in terms of how has God been merciful to you? I'm implanting the idea of mercy as we ask that question. And then reflexive questions where we get the person to think about their heart attitudes or their desires. You see the example there on the page 15 of reflexive conversation. The counselee said to me, my father hates me and my siblings don't want anything to do with me. I said, so things have been hard. And the person responded, things have been hard for a while and it feels like pain piles um, up on onto, on, onto pain and hurt, and it's never dealt with. I say to them, sounds a lot to me like you're growing bitter, but we've talked about this a lot. You're often not willing to look at your sin in these relationships. The person is silent. I patiently wait. Are you angry at your family? Or are you angry at God or both? The person responds, I'm angry at God. Are you blaming God for your troubles? The person responds, he is sovereign, isn't he? He brought this, not me. It sounds to me that you're angry and bitter at God. Is that right? And then lastly, you see there, you can ask questions that press for change. How can you be supportive of your wife? How are you going to protect against looking at pornography this week? Are you going to apologize to your boss? Do you need to forgive your father? You hear in the nature of those questions, it leaves no room for you just to do anything. It presses you to make a decision to do something about your life. And number 10, you see there finally, adopt a question asking strategy. Some of you are coming away from this and thinking, well, I just don't know how to do this. I ask those popcorn-like questions. I just don't know how to build terms of common sense and logic into a deeper conversation. Well, adopt a strategy then. You know, there are a lot of good books right now on the market about sanctification. Oftentimes, a lot of those books, like Tim Lane and Paul Tripp's How People Change, give you a framework in thinking through sanctification. And so many years ago, I was doing one of those training sessions where two people model a conversation in front of me, and a pastor's wife who had done training with me was doing the session. She was the counselor or the discipler. And I noticed halfway through her conversation, she's got a strategy in what she's doing. 
She's, she's deliberately asking certain kinds of questions after, one after another. And so when we were done, I said, okay, what were you doing there? Well, it turns out that the How People Change book has a diagram that traces out an overall picture of sanctification that they work through in the book. And she had so internalized that framework that she used it to help structure the nature of her conversations. Now, nobody knew. I knew because I'd read the book. Nobody knew as she was doing it, but she had adopted a strategy to help her learn how to do this better. So what is it? It's training wheels. If you feel like you're not any good at this, you can adopt training wheels because what does that do? It helps you to learn how to balance yourself overall. And after time, after you've done it long enough and you've done it enough times, you actually take the training wheels off because you can ride knowing how to balance yourself. Same thing with a conversation. If you need tra training wheels, there's no embarrassment in that. There are a lot of frameworks out there to help you think through how to do this overall. That's the main thing I wanted to say about this. Questions you have about asking questions or anything else that we talked about in this third talk. For Deepak. I have a question. Or Sarah? Um, I'm thinking through Jeremiah 17 where it says, the heart is deceitfully wicked, only God knows it. At what point do you have the counselee ask the Holy Spirit what's going on? Or is that ever... Does that make sense? Yes, uh, excuse me. Yeah, it, it does make sense um, in, in the sense of like, uh, the person may not have one enough self-understanding of their own wicked heart. Number two, they may not be mature enough to understand the level of deceit going on in their own heart. Number three, they could be blind to their own sin because of the idolatry and foolishness in their life. So you might actually see things that they don't see. And the decision of actually needing to speak in, well, the person who's over on the edge of the cliff who's about to ruin their life, well, you probably have to speak in before they even have insight to help rescue them. But there, there are a lot of relationships over here where actually you've got a lot of room to breathe and you want to help them grow up in understanding their own heart. So there's a lot of room here to pray and ask the Spirit to give them insight, to be patient and keep loving them, and pray that they grow in that and be slower in speaking in. But there's still a lot of room over here. I might want to speak in, but... It doesn't do any good if they don't have conviction from the Spirit. Especially if they're unrepentant sin. <laughs> if the Spirit doesn't convict, the whole situation's not going to turn around, and my words are going to fall on deaf ears. So yeah, I think very much so. In both situations, we ask the Spirit for insight because the Spirit has to bring conviction to our mind, our heart, and our conscience in growing and showing our own self-deceit in any particular situation. So does that answer your question, or do you have a follow-up to that? Are you, are, let me ask you, are you asking where does personal responsibility to ask the Lord to search my heart, O God, and try me come into the conversation in moments of counseling, decision-making, etc.? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, you think of Psalm 139, uh, reflecting on asking the Lord to help us know ourselves better and to give us insight into our hearts because He knows. I mean, he, knows he knows the deepest depths of your heart, and He can help you grow inside. So that's a basic prayer we all should be praying because sin still resides in our hearts, and yet we're encouraged by the psalmist to ask for that kind of help overall. So you, you might be thinking, if you're, you're here today, and think, I, I, don't, I, I, haven't really done any, I haven't done much of what you're describing here today. Well, that's a great prayer for you <laughs> in overall and growing that. You might feel like, well, I'm pretty self-aware of myself. I know how to handle this. I know how to handle conversations. You should still pray that. Because of the nature of sin and the way we can be blind to our own idolatry, we need help in understanding that. Any other questions? Does this... Megan. I don't like talking into microphones. Okay, so my follow-up question would be, 
to that um, in John 14, 26, where Jesus says that, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you in all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So in the two scenarios, one over here, someone's about to go off the cliff, um, and then the other person, maybe they've got some spiritual maturity, but wouldn't the Holy Spirit who if that person is a believer and they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, wouldn't that person also need the Holy Spirit to counsel them and to remind them of his word and be of God's word and be the teacher in that situation? So kind of as a follow-up, wouldn't that person also need to be counseled by the Holy Spirit and not just the person who maybe is a little bit more mature? Oh yeah, which is why I was saying not just here, the person who just is growing in self-understanding is immature and needs to grow up. But yeah, which is why I emphasize over here. Um, and I, I love the, the, the text that you're quoting because it's, 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 not, it's not my words that ultimately bring conviction. It's actually, it's, it's God's word who brings conviction and insight. Now, God can use me as a means to help them to grow in insight. The, the caveat to all this, though, is people can be embedded in so much foolishness, they can pray that prayer, and in that moment, you're not getting any insight. <laughs> yeah, because I think one of the things, if I'm understanding the questions and the related questions, the Spirit of God it convicts, converts, points us to Jesus, we can grieve the Spirit, quench the Spirit, all that's true. I think we are living in a a-theological age where people think hyper-subjective feelings is the Holy Spirit. Not everybody, but immature, narcissistic, selfish people have told me to my face, I've prayed about it, God wants me to be happy, and I'm leaving my wife. And I would say, you're listening to a spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit. And I know that because the Holy Spirit doesn't contradict the word of Christ who John 14, 26 is talking about. The Spirit is going to bring to remembrance what? What I, Jesus, taught you. What did he teach them? Everything we see in the Gospels, and that through the Spirit they would inspire the, the written Scriptures. So there is definitely a place for introspection, self-examination, seeking, fasting, praying. But the reason we have the canon of Scripture and the community of faith is for the assisting of confirmation, validation and instruction because if we are isolated to ourselves he who isolates himself cast off all sound judgment so yeah pray seek ask the lord may reveal those things but i would say that does take a lot of maturity in progressive sanctification for a new believer to have that self-awareness of are they hearing from god or not and there, I've, there have been moments where I'm in the room and you see, like, there's a breakthrough. <laughs> like, they, they gain, they, the Lord has opened up their eyes to something. There are moments where my words and Scripture falls on deaf ears. And you just keep working at it, praying that the Lord would change someone's heart. And keep praying and asking for the Lord to bring that kind of conviction. So I just don't want you to presume, just because I gave the word right now, it's supposed to be, just like in, in, in all of those counseling books, the stories where, Shazam! <laughs> they look at me and they say, oh my goodness, God has just opened up my heart and that was the exact right words in this moment. <laughs> I suddenly get it. Uh, that, that doesn't happen as often as I wish it would. <laughs> Any follow-up question to Megan's question? Astana. I uh, wonder, kind of thinking about what they were saying, what do you do when they say, you're judging me? Yeah, the, the, that, that's a great question. On the one side, if you think of Matthew 7, I, I need to be careful in terms of verse 3 and 4 that I've looked in my own heart, that I've examined my own motives in the conversation, that have come in, Philippians 2, with a humble posture, that I make sure my motives are redemptive motives. They would align with what God wants, not just simply what I'm trying to do in the situation. So that, 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 that helps me to step into a position and think about like, no, I am acting as 
you know, an ambassador for God, 2 Corinthians 5, and trying to bring you God's Word and pray that the Spirit would bring conviction in that regard. In, in, in terms of the temptation, like maybe I am not in the Word, I haven't prayed about it, I haven't sought counsel, I haven't measured this, my, my concerns up to God's Word, it could be that I'm judging them. <laughs> it could very well be. I'm coming in ready to wield a bat and go after them because I think they're wrong or they just need to deal with something. So that it, it does put a helpful pressure to make sure I'm in a good place spiritually as I enter into a hard conversation. Very few of us are, are privileged to be in the position of a prophet when he stands in front of David and says, you are the man <laughs> sent by God to tell the sinner about his own sin. Uh, so, unless you have a prophetic word for us right now, okay, uh, <laughs> just checking, he's the senior pastor, uh, then you need to examine your own motives and be careful about what you do when you are judging someone. Yeah. Yeah, well, when you think about someone going over the edge, you expect there to be pushback because they're in a bad spot spiritually. That doesn't deter me. If I've done what I've described to you, I've, I've prayed, sought counsel, been in the Word, examined my motives, uh, and so it's not done as a lone rager trying to go in and pursue that person. I got a lot better sound basis for why I'm coming in and having the hard conversation. It's a great question. Any other questions? Deepak, thank you for your work. Let's give him a round of applause. Glad to do it. We'll linger a little bit afterwards if you'd like to talk to Dee. Also, we need help kind of cleaning things up. And uh, again, you've heard a lot of things here today. You can re-listen to them on the talks. Uh, talk about the notes together. Pray for God to continue bearing good fruit uh, through our ministry to apply many of these same things. Um, yeah, so other than that, I'll close this in prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you now and we thank you that you've, in your good providence, allowed us to gather together to study your word, to think through uh, different applications, what it means to be uh, intentional and active listeners, uh, what it means to be men and women who draw out one another of the wells of our hearts. Lord, what it means for every member of the body not to see themselves as... Uh, inadequate, but competent and able uh, to care for, to serve, to instruct, to pray for, to love, to be committed to one another. Lord, we pray for the members of this congregation uh, that you would refresh our hearts on this great privilege. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be gentle, humble, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace as we seek to equip one another, to speak the truth to one another in love. We thank you for our brother Deepak. We pray you would guard his mind. We pray also that he would continue to store up your word in his heart, that he might not sin against you. And that would be true of us as well. Uh, Lord, we pray you would bear much fruit through this uh, workshop. And we also pray for tomorrow morning as he brings your word to us from 1 Kings. We pray that you would do exceedingly above all that we're able to ask or think. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.